Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Stephanie Harris, CEO of Aero Senior Living. The company, which is based in the St. Louis area, has 26 open communities and four more in pre-sales. Aero Senior Living was founded with turnarounds in mind. And while the company has shifted more to new development in recent years, Harris does believe that given the challenges of the industry today, turnarounds will become a larger part of what Aero does in 2022 and beyond. I think we're going to see a lot of ironing lots of wrinkles in this industry out and a lot of operational challenges that will need to be overcome, which will create a reshuffling of some properties to, to new operators to breathe new life. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. The winners will be announced on Senior Housing News in December. And now, here's my interview with Stephanie Harris, CEO of Aero Senior Living. Stephanie Harris, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So I wanted to start with kind of a state of play. I know that Aero Senior Living is based in St. Louis. I know that you've got some communities throughout that state of Missouri, particularly in the southwest part of the state. I know where the Delta coronavirus variant surged over the summer. So I wanted to check in before we get too deep into some of these other topics. You know, where, where are you guys at with the COVID front right now for Aero's communities, especially in some of these areas like in southwest Missouri, where the Delta variant had hit pretty hard this year? Sure. Well, thank you, first off, for letting me join you for this uh, conversation. We've been very fortunate that um, while cases are popping up, our strategy uh, in testing uh, as well as uh, pushing the vaccine, although not mandating it, but uh, encouraging and getting great voluntary participation, we fared very well, even at the peak of Delta, which was great because in a sense, it gave us a front row seat in the first round or the first act of, uh, of this last uh, wave. Um, and I was surprised at how many of our communities uh, were able to work through what were overwhelming the hospital systems. We uh, came out with very, very little impact. And where we had cases, it was really clearly based upon resident exposure to family visits. You know, something that's, uh, you don't want any exposure, especially with employee uh, to resident exposure. And it was nice to know that the precautions, the testing strategy uh, did do, go a very long way at protecting the resident uh, base. So you mentioned that, I mean, obviously the, the, you, you saw the Delta variant a little earlier, I think, than some of the other folks. Um, you know, you said you were part of that first act. So I guess I'm curious, given what you went through with Delta, do you feel a little bit more confident that this Omicron variant, be able to confront it and, and you know, solve for that and all of that? I mean, I guess more generally, also, do you feel like the industry is is well prepared to handle another variant, just given the fact that the world didn't end, I guess, with this last variant? Sure. I think it's, you know, it's the endemic elements of what this pandemic is, it has evolved into uh, that'll, I think, unfortunately, be a part of the future, just like we have flu season. I think we'll continue to see a coronavirus or whatever variant, uh, most likely, not necessarily as an annual uh, thing at this rate, the variants are coming about every six months as a major wave. I think we're ready as an industry, and I think we're only ready because we're more aware. A lot of the techniques that we've learned um, in fighting coronavirus are going to serve us well into the future. 
um, that I think uh, despite the news and, and fortunately the news even got better today that possibly it's no different than a, than a cold, what we don't know enough about is exactly the age groups that are most impacted. And even with coronavirus, uh, most people that, that were exposed to it didn't have the serious cases that seniors would have as a general age group to in their experience with coronavirus versus other age groups. You know, I think that would be our bigger risk if there is one that is that has a, a bigger impact on seniors, which I think the good news is with more vaccine rate or higher vaccine rate among seniors, we have a better leg to stand on as we battle future rounds. I don't think we're ever going to be entirely prepared, but we, we are far more well prepared in that infection control is going to become a part of our permanent conversation that skilled in hospital settings have always had. I think we now are going to see infection control com- committees being a regular ongoing part of you know, any best practice any company would have to uh, manage similar to how they would do any risk management or any other kind of quality assurance measure. And a moment ago, I said the world didn't end with Delta. I guess I shouldn't make light of that. You know, obviously, Delta has been very problematic and challenging for this industry. Um, so it's it's good that it sounds like uh, you think that some of these preparations will go and and serve the industry well. This new yeah. variant. So I want to talk with you about the recovery. So obviously, I think there's a lot of evidence now that operators across the country were adding occupancy again. The NIC data, I think, for the past couple of months or at least for the last report, uh, trended positive in terms of average occupancy for the, the industry. So I wanted to also check in with Arrow. Um, what has the recovery looked like for you guys? And and I guess, you know, sort of to sort of turn that question around, where are you also still feeling some of the pressure still? Sure. I think the, uh, the good news is the recovery um, has continued to uh, get better and better month over month. We are averaging some communities 2% recovery in occupancy a week, and as a company, 1.6% a month on average over the last 12 months. So the reason for the large numbers on some of the communities is that we had a lot of new developments open right before COVID or during COVID. All of our communities that were stabilized going into COVID are now not only back to stabilized occupancies, but are at higher occupancies than what they had pre-COVID, which I think is remarkable. The other area, because we do so much new development, we're already testing out what I would say like is future interest in senior living. We have a lot of pre-sales or new development communities that are going to open in the next six to 10 months that are leasing in res- new reservations at a rate that's probably even in some cases better than pre-COVID rates. I mean, we just opened a community uh, about uh, 36 days ago in uh, south in, in the middle of Missouri in a town uh, called Columbia, Missouri, and we have 78 occupied apartments already in just over a month. Um, so I think that that speaks that uh, to the fact that j- the seniors that are looking ahead are doing that again, and that uh, the communities that are lagging are more than likely not getting the benefit of being necessarily the newest uh, community in their markets or um, may have already always been a little occupancy challenge. Uh, so we're noticing that the communities that are lagging in the overall performance were ones that were turnaround projects we had taken on uh, before the pandemic. They, they basically recovered over tw- since 2020 uh, into 2021 to a neutral setting because there's always been turnover in the process, but they're not getting the same growth levels that our new development or our uh, stabilized assets have had in, in their faster recovery. 
I want to ask you about your growth in, in a little bit. Can you remind me how many communities Arrow is up to these days? I know you've you've been growing these past couple of years. Sure. We have uh, 30 communities. We have uh, 26 of them that are uh, open in operation and, and four that are in pre-sales. So I know that you focused on the middle market, I believe, and correct me if this is wrong, because I remember reading this in a, in a story that we did, I think. I remember your communities, or at least at the time, they were lying in that you know $3,500 to $4,500 a month range for rates. So I guess I'm curious, you know, especially now, given all of the new pressures and expenses that senior living operators have to keep in mind, what's the key to making that middle market work, in your opinion? I think the, the biggest trick with middle market is going to be appropriately sizing the scope of services that it's not just all standalone AL or standalone AL memory care that includes independent living so that you can create longer tenure, length of stay, and better outcomes that create lower cost in operation are really what supplement or subsidize, if you want to think about it that way, the rents of our residents. So if our occupancies, instead of looking at stabilization as 92%, if the communities can drive, you know, upwards of 98 to even 100% occupancy, that's really critical in managing the balance of paying well our employees and maintaining a, this uh, modest, uh, you know, middle market uh, rent structure. It's really looking at everything in terms of efficiencies at every level. It's not only that occupancy, but it's the use of technology. We rely heavily upon independent living in our unit mix, which really helps on margin and how we share resources across the campus. Uh, we also heavily share employees at a home office level, providing services to the communities in services that we would otherwise have to have one FTE. We can have a partial share of, of cost and pool that resource across multiple locations. It's really the combination of each of these efforts that I think to go to the heart of maintaining a middle market rent structure. You mentioned margin. In your opinion, what's a healthy healthy margin for a middle market senior living community? You know, I've I've heard some discussion about whether or not these communities, uh, just by their design, maybe carry a lower margin than their sort of traditional counterparts. But what's your thinking on all that? Well, I think if I were to speak to margins, it, I, it would most likely be in context of like a standalone AL memory care. So we actually have a much higher margin because of the campus and the independent living piece. So on a blended rate, we're doing better than traditional, you know, 30, 40% margins because of the independent living. So it's really hard to say that other than a healthy balance of an independent living resident pool can drive better margins overall, including an assisted living and memory care. I remember reading that you had thought that focusing on the middle market had given you an open lane to expand in other markets. Is is that because, you know, the opportunity is great because this is an in-demand product everywhere you go? You know, obviously people like middle market uh, senior living, but for its price point, I mean, yeah, I guess it is. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, pressure at the top. You know, I, I, I look at, we're situated in St. Louis County or just outside of St. Louis County in the St. Louis region. And St. Louis County is an example of an area that has some pockets of wealth where there's been a tremendous amount of new development, great product, but the occupancies have just really lagged. As you are targeting or as the industry is targeting these higher income markets, we've accepted a far lower penetration rate because folks who can afford you know, $6,000 a month plus rents also very well have the option to choose home-based care or home services. And I think that is ultimately 
uh, the greatest competition is people choosing to stay at home and choosing home-based services. But in middle market, those choices aren't available. Or if they are, it's only for a very limited time. And in fact, I think it gives us a greater, I think what we're going to find is the industry researches more middle market that our penetration rates grow. And as an industry, our penetration rates will grow, obviously, as we capture this new market, but that the demand is far greater because the, the resources in that they are limited, um, we're going to see uh, a more, uh, you know, a higher uh, penetration rate overall and, and better stabilization. You know, we have a river that separates us when, where the core of our products that are located in St. Uh, Charles County outside of St. Louis County. This is an example of that river is a major barrier. We're actually charging or getting you know, better rates overall in our blended approach, pure middle market versus the concessions and the and the uh, the battle that has had to go on the other side of the river for communities that were underwritten at rates far higher than what we're achieving on in this suburban market uh, just you know, next door neighboring market and I think that that's often what we're going to find um, as we start to find new suburban areas to target in the middle market there actually will be more more residents more interest in senior living. If anything, you're convincing people that they're worth investing that money into, not that they have the option to choose something else. So with limited choice and and a little bit more patience, I think operators can enjoy this new untapped market. So right now, um, with this recovery underway, so many operators are focused on turning. I mean, every operator is focused on turning their leads into move-ins. I remember reading over Arrow's website, you wrote a digital training manual on that exact yes. topic, you know, turning leads into move-ins. I'm not sure when you wrote that guide. I don't know if you wrote it with a you know, pandemic in mind, but this yeah. is a very important time you know, for doing that. So I guess from the expert, what's the key to turning leads into move-ins right now? you know, as, as you look across the industry? Well, I'll have to admit, it, I wrote the document about 16 years ago while I was in law school. So, very, uh, very different senior living back then. Very, very different, but in some ways very appropriate. A lot of the foundation of turning leads into move-ins is appreciating each individual lead, even those who say no to us, that N-O is a K-N-O-W. It is that they don't know enough to say yes. In uh, uh, that a more patient, a more deliberate sales process can yield a, a much higher conversion rate. In, in an industry that needs more conversions, we really do need to slow down and look at building value, building trust, some of those core fundamentals of the turning leads into move-ins uh, sales model. We still use the sales training materials today uh, and some of the tools that were developed in creative follow-up strategies and uh, direct mail and other resident individualized marketing uh, efforts to uh, drive uh, residents' prospects to our communities uh, today. And if anything, we're going back to that model more purely than we have in the last couple years as web and SEO approaches and geofencing have dominated a lot of the narrative, I think we're going to see a bigger focus on we've generated enough leads, how do we close these leads? And uh, as a company, we're building out an entire effort in terms of reducing locator agency dependency and reducing cost of, of lead uh, to move in as uh, additional ways to stabilize our communities and further address the margin pressures that we're feeling with uh, the labor markets today 
and other inflationary impacts of the industry. Uh, so the more we can figure out how to motivate those people who have the choice to say yes to the community versus those who are desperately forced to make a decision, I think that's where we're going to see improved length of stay. And I believe that is absolutely the most important key to achieving uh, a balance and better margin and meeting that affordability need is to ensure that when a resident moves in, they're doing it early enough so that we can have a long quality length of stay uh, once they make that decision. I've heard you use this phrase, green bananas, <laughs> in reference to uh, to residents who uh, who need more time uh, before they move into senior living. So that that's a good segue. So can you can you flesh that out a little bit more, or just you know tell us why those residents are so important? You know, uh, sort of along the line of what you were just saying. I think uh, COVID is going to have uh, a lasting impact, and one of the, the next waves outside of the variants is going to be. Uh, turnover, uh, a resident turnover crisis. The kind of residents moving in today and part of this pent-up demand are residents who require far more care. We call those uh, kind of the uh, overripe bananas. And back to the core message of what drives efficiency, what drives better outcomes, what improve, what uh, helps us meet the affordability challenge we have to have residents move in sooner, even if it is six months sooner than waiting until uh, that crisis gets a little bit more unmanageable or uh, a little more difficult to manage the, to, to where they have to make a choice. So if the sales process is more about what ifs and what, and talking through the the various decision, uh, we call it a roller coaster, the, the emotional roller coaster, the ups and downs, we're more likely to capture them before all the bruises set in and before all of the, uh, the ripe, the yellowing, the green, or the, the yellowing to the browning that can occur, uh, much like a banana. Uh, so in fact, uh, I spend usually the first six months of, of my year pretty deep, knee deep in the sales challenges of the company. Seems like the other half of the year, but it's like, it's become budget season with, uh, with COVID <laughs> where it's like we're always constantly addressing moves and shifts there. But I, uh, the Green Banana Brigade has uh, relaunched for the, the next six months uh, within the Aero organization. And as the teams had to quickly fill as many as we possibly could, we have additional leads we have to, to, to cultivate that might not move for the next six to nine to 12 months. And our, our sales process could stand to be a whole lot more focused on that, on that group. And I think our industry doesn't even in some cases have that on the radar um, that I think is going to be that real monumental shift to better outcomes and a greater penetration rate that will be the most, I think, revolutionary or most disruptive in a positive way for uh, for the future of the industry. So you mentioned earlier technology. I know technology plays a big role. I'm assuming in, in your sales as a, as well as your operations. You know, this year we have seen really the rise of of so much new technology in this industry and new ways to implement it. So I, I wanted to get your take. You know, as you look at at what you're doing at Arrow, what's new on the technology front? What's promising right now? And I'm curious, as you've been assumedly trying out new technology, has there been anything that has not lived up to your expectations? We beta test different kinds of technology all the time because we, we seem to be a magnet for new entrants into the space and love to test various um, uh, types of technology. And I think a few years ago, the shift for us was 
how do we manage the 10 to 11 systems that we have in, on average in each community and have each of them speak or some way for communication and analysis across each of these, uh, these various channels. And I think our industry lacks kind of one portal. Even if you have an integrated um, electronic health record, there's, there's still challenges to how information can upload into it, as well as um, how you can uh, glean information from the electronic health record, or then furthermore, and compare it to your emergency call systems. I mean, these are all systems we all are, are most likely using, but I think a lot of companies haven't done that step forward to building the platform to create the conversion and to create the better outcomes. So we are knee deep in creating uh, care planning, better care planning results from integrating and leveraging all technology. And that is like our top focus. We've added a couple hardware-based systems that, that have, you know, fall detection or predictive analytics included in them, but we see them all a part of this complementary effort uh, to create a better care planning uh, system or care planning structure. We started this two years ago. So if companies haven't started to have these various channels and figuring out ways to convert it, we convert through Power BI. And uh, I think that really the next two years, our greatest innovations are going to come from how all of this information can be utilized, creating better outcomes for our residents and interventions when needed, services when when required versus the way today that we, we plan by checklist or we plan by physical proximity and, and we try to do it by resident preference when, as we're so staffed and strapped today, uh, it can often be very difficult. But if we can create an artificial intelligence and machine learning because we've been collecting data and being able to interpret that data, I think that is what's going to dictate the next two to three years, at least within our organization. And I'm looking forward to that driving the better outcomes across the industry uh, that are, are desperately needed. So to quickly answer your question, has anything failed? Stuff fails all the time. If we don't fail, we're never going to learn. <laughs> so right. uh, we're okay with that. And sometimes uh, I can drive my team crazy with a harebrained idea here or there or put a, a restriction that, you know, if we're going to solve this problem, I want to do it with some hardware costs, but no impact on terminal value or other restraints that we may uh, self-impose. We have an opportunity to, uh, through trial and error, it's going to have that um, within it, make a lot of mistakes that will help us land on uh, a better way of doing things. That's that's really all I, all I think anybody could be doing at this point because we're so early on in this data collection and interpretation. It reminds me of something I've heard someone in the industry say that folks need to be prepared to fail forward, you know, learn from their <laughs> mistakes. So you mentioned a little bit ago, you wrote that the leads into move-ins training manual 16 years ago when you were in, in law school. I, I also know that you came to the senior living industry after working on Capitol Hill for a while yes. while you were, I believe, an undergrad in Washington, D.C. So it sounds like senior living has been on your mind for for a long time. So I guess, why, why did you decide to get into this business and what was it like uh, going from the world that you were in to, to this world? Yeah, <laughs> well, it all uh, is, is the result of having one door close and another one open. I uh, was in, uh, in politics and, and uh, thought I would 
be, you know, uh, not only working on Capitol Hill, but eventually running for office. And my ego was so big at a ripe old age of 20 years old that (laughs) as as it it usually is, (laughs) as mine was, I had the great fortune of being terminated for my ego, uh, getting into a personality conflict with a, uh, I was on a national high profile campaign. We're just going from exploratory committee to national to official committee. And, uh, it was the end of my road. <laughs> and I was lucky that uh, back in undergrad, I had met uh, one of my friends. Father was in the industry. He's got a, a fantastic uh, senior housing campus and had a turnaround business. And so I was able, uh, I think I, I think he called me within two hours of this happening. I think I put it off for two weeks and um, then eventually agreed to do something for 21 days about six months later, I was still at that project, not only wrapping up uh, the, the goals of a, of a sales SWAT team and a, a sales push, but took a community from 50% to nearly 100% in less than six months. Uh, so it was a really uh, interesting experience. And I was hooked because like most people in at that point, I, I think I just turned 21 at the time, it was right, right around that time period, most people at 21 are doing different things than, than I was doing. Uh, but it, I remember at night after putting in a, a hard day, was, this is up in Minnesota in the middle of the winter, I probably could have gone to a bar. <laughs> or what I did is I grabbed VHS tapes and watched how seniors or how uh, caregivers were trained. And I just was consuming everything I could, any book I could find. And I used that time to really start learning the space. And I, I knew from then that I was going to go back into this industry, even with knowing that I was still going to go to law school. Took a lot of pressure off law school, knowing that I was going to just go right back into the space. And while some people were rushing to get inter- to interview for their permanent legal job, you know, I was showing up to school and, you know, flip flops and T-shirts and <laughs> and writing sales materials sitting in the classroom during lectures because one thought would trigger another. And I uh, just, it's been a, a, a wild ride, but uh, it, it probably would never have occurred, you know, but for one introduction or one outreach. Wow. That's a, that's a great origin story. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for sharing. I also know that you have a mission and a purpose of making senior living cool. And I know that that's something that we have written about in recent years. I have sensed in recent years that more people do see the cool factor of this industry, but obviously that it is a battle that never ends. And especially with, I think that there's a big public perception fight ahead of this industry. I think that part of that is getting people to see how cool this industry is. So as you go forward, as you further that mission and that purpose, how do you think the industry can be cooler in the eyes of its prospective residents and their families? Well, that's uh, a great question. I'll, I will, I'll never forget that uh, 16 years ago, um, I had a creative director working for the company and we were creating fake websites and kind of working on just modeling out some, some templates to use for some consulting clients we were working with. And he threw a tagline on there, making senior living cool. And it, all, it stuck with me from the moment he put that on there. Like, that's really what we're trying to do. It's about building culture making a community the place to be. And a lot of the core principles in the turnaround side is breathing new life into the community. And that would often come by way of energy. Um, I remember touring somebody in one of my early projects who said, well, the last time I went to that community, nothing was going on. It was boring. It was dead. It was, you know, whatever. 
So the day I got them to agree to come in for a new tour because we were in the process of acquiring the community. We were the consulting bridge doing the pre-sales and I set up a, a live band to play and just overwhelm a happy hour event that I planned and timed out just for this, this couple's visit. They weren't necessarily invited to the happy hour, but this was the background. I was going to change the mise-en-scene, the, the <laughs> yes. environment that she was entering. And we've carried a lot of that thought into how we uh, introduce prospects to sales. But I think where I am most excited in Arrow is that we have introduced it with our employees. And I think if our employees think that what we're doing is cool, it transfers in how they uh, are meeting and, and uh, providing care for our residents. Our residents feel it. When they see our staff having fun, they want to join in. One of my favorite events that one of our uh, our chief operating officers is just our, our chief culture cultural guru. Probably about uh, 14, 15 years ago, she hosted a uh, nurses uh, event. It was, you know, nurses day you know, uh, celebration. And, you know, it could have been just, you know, a, a food and a little bit of, you know, honoring employees here and there, but she turned it into a rock star party and they actually set up a fake tattoo parlor and it was the employees lining up and the residents were lined up to get eat, you know, like, it's taking different things like that today and giving a kind of a new spin that I think are resident and employee based events uh, that are out there. And, and we've got to figure out how to create engagement at both levels. It's not just about, yes, we need to be resident minded. I think we are in a period of time where more than ever we have to be employee minded. And that is how we will drive any of the outcomes we want to see in making senior living cool, more attractive to uh, seniors and adult children. It's when they see our employees engaged at a high level. They'll see it when they, when the, the buildings are filling up or almost are, 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 are full with a waiting list, or we have great technology that we can offer for communication or for resident, uh, for improving resident outcomes. Now, I think it's going to be such basic fundamentals is where we're going to be finding all the fun in senior living. So I want to take the last little moment of our podcast to talk about the future with you. Obviously, I, you know, as talking with with operators in the past few months, you know, every single one of them tells me that, you know, they they think that staffing is is, is the big challenge right now. Um, so along the lines of what you were just saying, what are your thoughts about how the industry can overcome, you know, its biggest staffing challenge maybe in its history? Sure, sure. I think that we have to use this as a period of time to also evaluate our workforce dependency and how do we make the processes we carry out at the community level fundamentally respect the role of each employee. Uh, I think a lot of what we've done is what feels right and feels convenient, but isn't always easy and flexible for the employees. And if we can create uh, more efficiency with that group and more, you know, open our ears and our eyes to the feedback that they have to provide, I think that we're going to learn a lot and we're going to be able to, out of desperation or aspiration, we're going to get better at how we staff and deliver services. But it's, I think this problem is everything we needed to get that uncomfortable and start to look at the use of technology in ways that we haven't, you know, up to this point or our employees who may have been slow to adopt technology are more willing because they know that they, it might just be them on the shift or it might just be them and somebody else and they need to leverage something to get through the day. Um, I think that's uh, it, that, that's going to be how we see our way through. 
but also how we come out on the other side with more time for direct resonant interaction and engagement and less uh, in terms of inefficiency from walking inefficiently from one apartment to the next, poor care planning that, you know, has you zigzagging or, or not able to predict what somebody might need uh, to how we simplify documentation or potentially how we use robots in the care of our residents and in, or in, in uh, surveillance of some sort. So we've, we've talked a little bit about growth, so I want to revisit that. So obviously, Arrow, again, is a growing company. What growth opportunities do you see ahead? And, you know, next year, how do you see the company growing? Yeah, we're continuing with new development. I think that's going to be an opportunity that you know, because we have a track record and we have especially having some very, very positive outcomes in our current pre-sales projects, we're going to continue to, to support ongoing new development um, and we're going to be able to weather through any lender resistance or reluctance uh, in the space. But um, I also think that uh, the turnaround side of our business is going to become a bigger part where we may have shelved it over the last four or five years and done very little in that area because of how much we've had a new development. I think we're going to see a lot of, of, of ironing lots of wrinkles in this industry out and uh, a lot of operational challenges that uh, will need to be overcome, which will create a kind of a reshuffling of uh, some properties to, to new operators to breathe new life. I think we'll, we're, we're going to want to seat at the table based on our experience. And I think this will be uh, a lot of movement over the next two, three years. And, and we're excited to see how it will ultimately create better outcomes that I think this industry desperately needs. So you and I are talking in, in early December. Obviously, we are at the cusp of a new year. Um, so I, I want you to kind of gaze into your, your your crystal ball, if you could. How do you expect the rest of this pandemic to play out? You know, how much longer are you preparing to do business like this? You know, more generally, what do you see ahead in 2022? Well, I'm going to tell you something. There is something extremely predictable about coronavirus that uh, I have to share. It's that it's always unpredictable. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So I think that, uh, I think it, I always viewed our company as agile and able to respond quickly to change. I think that it really put that to a test. You know, are we truly as agile as we need to be and should be? And I think it caused us to recenter or refocus on that. You know, I think you were probably going to see more waves. That's a reality. We might see new challenges that uh, aren't even in our, our purview today. You know, the staffing challenge was there pre-COVID, but it, boy, it sure got very worse, <laughs> very bad, very, very quickly uh, turned for the worse. There could be another challenge. You know, we have no clue what's going to happen with this inflationary impact or what's going to happen on the debt side uh, in, in this uh, in this space and we're uh, in the global economy. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict, but I can say the one thing we can do to prepare is to make sure we are agile, that we are truly listening to respond and additionally finding that better path forward because struggling through the need to adapt and the need to change with all of the, the, the different uh, things we're, that we're facing uh, in the industry is going to surely help each company find their true differentiation uh, among somebody staying at home or among them in another community. And I think that that's where we can't afford, but we have to find that silver lining. And I think it'll be unique for each company, but I hope 
across the entire industry, it is that we are far more outcome minded and that we are able to figure out a way to tout the success rates like other industries can in a tangible way that is objective and easy for the consumer to navigate and compare one product to another to know what they're getting, what they're paying for. Great. Well, those are great words to end it on. Um, Stephanie Harris, thank you so much for coming on Transform. This has been a fantastic discussion uh, from one from one St. Louis into another, well, <laughs> former St. Louis into another. So thank you. Thank you so much. This thank has you. been great. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. The winners will be announced on Senior Housing News in December. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.